Good morning. You know, one thing that comes to mind when we hear songs like that and sing songs like that is that the very heart that God, that we have to sing those songs with, the very heart that we have to delight in God with, is itself a gift from God. Isn't that incredible? We don't come to worship Him and we create that in our own hearts. We don't come and say, I'm going to worship God today and I'm just going to choose to do that. But we are given a heart with which to exalt Him, to hold Him up. So praise God that He gives us that kind of heart. That's the new heart that comes with conversion. And so if you're here today and you're you're listening to these songs and you're thinking, okay, you know, those are kind of upbeat, I like the instruments, some nice singing, but there's just no elevation in your heart, in your mind about the content of that of those songs, about the God who is sung about in those songs. What you need is a new heart. And the good news of Christianity, the good news is that God can, in his grace, give you that new heart. We ask him. We say, God, forgive me of my sins. Change my heart. Come into my life. Rule over me. Call out to God. We're told in the scripture that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise God for that promise. So maybe today... There's an invitation to you. Call out to this God and be reconciled to God. Be saved. In fact, every time we gather for a worship service, I think we are doing, for those maybe among us who aren't Christians, we are doing what Paul tells us to do in 2 Corinthians 5. That God is making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. So if if you're not Finding yourself with a heart of worship. Know that God can give you that by his grace. As we call upon him. If you would please go with me in your Bibles to Matthew 6. Matthew 6 verses 25 to 34. Maybe a familiar passage today. Matthew 6 verse 25. Our time in the Sermon on the Mount so far has introduced or maybe reintroduced us to a number of topics. Some maybe that are entirely new to you. Some that uh, you're maybe overly familiar with. That oftentimes happens in the Christian life. We become overly familiar with the content of the Bible. And we need God to come in and sort of break up that familiarity a little bit so that we can come to freshly experience the truth of God's word so that we can come to freshly appreciate what it is that we find there. So we have been introduced or reintroduced to a number of topics. We've seen the basic character, the societal impact, the ethical framework, and the religious practice of a Christian. And then more recently, or most recently, we've seen the daily pursuits of a Christian. That's the topic that we have been in lately. Jesus has asked us to consider three things over the last little bit of time that we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. He's asked us to consider our storing, our seeing, and our serving. Do we store up treasure on earth or in heaven? That's the question that Jesus wants us to ask when we come to chapter 6, verse 19, verses 19 to 21. We storing up things here, acquiring and accumulating things that we can enjoy and experience in our physical selves here, or are we storing up eternal things in heaven? Do we have a generous eye? We saw that the eye is an illustration for the heart. Do we have a generous generous heart or one that is bent on acquiring and pursuing really with no regard for others or even at the expense of others. Jesus wants us to ask that question as well. And finally, are we slaves of God or of possessions? You know, the truth is that every Christian is a slave of God. In fact, and Paul will talk about the inner being of the person being uh, turned towards God in Christ and being a slave of God, not a slave of sin any longer. 
But the problem is that oftentimes in the Christian life, we can wander away from the truth. We can wander away from holiness and we can begin to functionally, although in identity we are slaves of God, we can begin functionally to exhibit a kind of slavery to those things from which we were freed when God saved us. So are we slaves of God or of possessions? Jesus wants us to ask this question as we come to verse 24 of chapter 6. So these are all of the questions that we've faced recently in our time in the Sermon on the Mount. And so when we come to verse 25 and we read the words that we're going to see today, do not be anxious or In some translations, do not worry. Essentially, it's the same idea. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. When we come to these words, we might be tempted to think that we've moved on to a different or even entirely new topic. And in fact, one could come to this scripture in such a way that he or she is just looking for something very immediately practical and pluck these verses right out of the Sermon on the Mount and say, here we go. This is Jesus' teaching on anxiety or his teaching on worry. Well, clearly this is the theme of these verses. Verses 25 to 34. We see the word everywhere in the passage. So verse 25, do not be anxious. Verse 28. Why are you anxious? Verse 31. Do not be anxious. Verse 34. Do not be anxious. So clearly, this passage is about anxiety or about worry. But there are at least three things that tell us that we haven't really moved on to a different topic. And this is important for us. Because if you come to these verses thinking along those lines that you've moved to an entirely different topic... And now we're just going to entertain this idea of worry. Then you really lose the force of what Jesus is saying. When you take it out of its context. Three reasons why I don't think we're moving on to a different topic. First, the beginning of verse 25. We get that word that we should always recognize. Anytime we're reading the Bible. Therefore. Therefore, or for this reason. And it logically connects what we're about to read to what precedes. So everything we've been looking at for the couple of weeks that we looked at verses 19 to 24. The word therefore, before he says do not be anxious, tells us, hold on a second. Direct logical link between this idea of worry and anxiety and what we just saw in that previous passage. That's the first little clue to tell us we're not going on to something entirely New. Second, at the end of verse 25, we get this question. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So that tells us that here we're talking once again about priorities and pursuits. What is most important? What is more important? Jesus is saying, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. So we know that we're still in a train of thought that is focused on priorities and pursuits. And then thirdly, the language of seeking and pursuing that we have in verse 32 and 33, they seek after, talking about the Gentiles, and then the following verse, that one that we know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You probably have memorized that. So we have that. Seek first. Here's my basic point. All of this tells us that seeking and worrying are inextricably tied together. In other words, let me say it this way. Rightly storing, seeing, and serving push the life away from worry. Do you see that? When we rightly store up, when we rightly see when our eyes are, are, not, are not evil but are healthy, as Jesus describes it as an illustration of the heart. And when we rightly serve or are slaves to God, worry becomes a distant thing. Worry is pushed away from the life. But the opposite could be said. Wrongly storing, seeing, and serving pull the life towards worry. So question for you. Do you think about Anxiety in this way. 
Do you tend to think about anxiety in these terms? Let me ask the question this way. Have you drawn the same logical connection that the Lord Jesus does? Now, this, of course, needs to be nuanced and understood in light of the fact that some folks physiologically deal with anxiety in a more pronounced way. That does not change the fact of what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew chapter 6. The fact that some are more predisposed towards that than others. It does not change the raw truth that here Jesus draws a logical link between a kind of wrong seeing, serving, and storing and anxiety. So just basic question before we go any further into the content of this passage is have you made that logical link in your own life? Let me go a bit further. If for you, the people close to you who are in your life would say to you, you know, if you ask them, do you think I worry a lot? Do you think I'm an anxious person? If that is you, have you made this logical connection in your own life? One of the things that I think we tend to do with worry and anxiety is justify it. And I hope that as we go through this passage, as we look at what Jesus has to say about it, that we won't take worry and anxiety and treat it as something wholly different from everything else Jesus has to say within the Sermon on the Mount. That we'll begin to couch it within the spiritual terms which Jesus puts it in here in the, in the flow of thought in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you make this logical connection that Jesus does? So what does Jesus do with worry or anxiety in this passage? Well, I think the basic answer to that question is that he wages war on worry. In a a, a multifaceted way. It's incredible when you come to this passage and you look at what Jesus does. He, He lays argument upon argument upon argument in such a short space against worry. You're meant to read this passage and frankly, literally say, worry is not only ungodly, it is stupid. Literally, and I mean that in the true sense of the word stupid. It is foolish. It is irrational. It is anti-intellectual in the true sense of what a human intellect is meant to do. Jesus wants to pile up argument upon argument upon argument so as to show the reader, especially, or the the reader for us, the hearer in Jesus' day on the side of that mountain, so as to show us that worry is not something we should continue to do as disciples of Jesus. So let's go ahead and read our passage, and then we'll pray to the Lord and ask for his help. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34. And if you will, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. So Jesus says this. And I'm going to read verse 24 too. Because I want you to see the flow of thought. Verse 24 comes out of the previous passage. I won't read the whole previous passage. But at least verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, therefore I tell you. We've got to do that quickly, or you lose it. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon... In all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, 
Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. All. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You may be seated. Praise God for this passage. I don't know. I mean, I have, this has been a problem for me off and on in my life. And praise God. God for this passage. I mean, this passage has been so instructive for me on a personal level. And I pray today and, and as we go into next week as well, that this passage will just become fresh for us. The Lord will use it to minister to our troubled hearts, our troubled souls. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our sovereign Lord our creator God, Abba, Father. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us while we were still weak. Christ died for the ungodly. We thank you, Father, that you have been merciful to us in putting your own son on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Father, you have been good to us. If nothing else, to save us from eternal damnation and wrath for our sin, you have been good to us, God. We praise you. And you have given us hearts to delight in you. You've given us souls that can sing praises to you in in utter heavenly ecstasy and souls and bodies with which we will one day glorify you forever and enjoy a new creation. And all of this quite apart from the daily ways in which you provide for our needs. Father, you are good. You are kind and loving. We affirm that today. We know that we are so faithless often. We know that we do not uphold your name or advance your kingdom in our anxieties and our worries. Would you care for us, God, and would you forgive us for being anxious when we should trust in you? And perhaps for justifying our anxiety because we see it all around us and it becomes a menial thing. But to see it as Jesus saw it and to repent of it. And to trust you, our Heavenly Father, as Jesus, by your Spirit, has intended us to do as Christians. So, Father, we ask for help. We need to be ministered to by your Holy Spirit in various ways on this subject. And so, Father, uh, just help us. Help us now to uh, speak clearly and listen carefully and to read closely. Help us to be attentive to the work that you are doing in us. And may we all leave changed. God, we know that your word does not go out in vain, but it has power. And we pray today it will do its powerful work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is War Against Worry. And not so much our war against worry. As much as it is Christ's war against worry in this very short passage of arguments. This very short space, I think Jesus wages a, a defeating war against worry. With the logic and with the direction to which he points us in this passage. You can go ahead with that slide, Kevin. Thank you. And in the process of waging war against worry, I think Jesus calls us to do at least seven things. Now, we're not going to look at all seven of these today. I'd hoped maybe we would. It's not going to work out. 
Uh, But we will come back next week and consider the latter four. What I want to do today is look at these first three. But let me go ahead and read them all out to you. These seven things that I think Jesus is calling us to do in light of his war against worry with his argumentation and his words here. I think Jesus is telling us to observe the creation, to compare the value, to recognize the futility, to reject the world, to trust the Father, to prioritize the eternal, and to await the provision. I think that is Jesus' prescription here for us in our troubled world for those of us who belong to him. We know that all of this is impossible for those who do not. But for those who have the Holy Spirit inside of them, for those of us who have God in us, we can overcome worry by God's grace and we can fight the devil as we trust Christ. So let's look at each of these. I want to say briefly that this is not a topical treatment of worry. So you may be thinking when you leave here today, you know, well, well, I could have said that about worry, could have said that about worry. And absolutely, there are many things I could say about worry. It's a huge topic in our day, and there's a lot of angles from which you could come to this topic of worry. This sermon is by no means, or this set of sermons is by no means an exhaustive treatment or comprehensive treatment of the topic of worry. What I hope to do, though is to simply trace Jesus' thought in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Because here's the thing. Whatever ideas we might have about worry from elsewhere, they would need to cohere with this. So whatever we may bring to the table in the books we've read, in the counseling we've in, endured, or maybe you know the, the counseling we've had, I should say, I'm going to say endured. Whatever it is that's happened, whatever experiences we've had, whatever interactions we've had, whatever truths that we think we have about worry, those would be important, and we would we would think on those. But those must conform to what our Lord says here. So. There may be many things that go unsaid throughout these two sermons. But the hope is that we will at least capture what our Lord says here in the Sermon on the Mount. In the course of his sermon. As he goes from chapters 5 to 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. So what is Jesus telling us to do as it relates to worry? The first of those is Jesus says, observe the creation. Observe the creation. For these first three points, I want you to look at verses 25 to 30. I'm going to read those again. Verses 25 to 30, because these first three points, which we'll cover this morning, observe the creation, compare the value, recognize the futility, all come out of this first set of verses. Verse 31 kind of moves us along in the argument. He says, therefore... Tells us he's just kind of moving along logically in the course of his argument. So verses 25 to 30. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food in the body, more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So before we jump into this first point... I want to look at three preliminary things that I think we need to consider as we come to Jesus' arguments against worry or against anxiety. The first very basic thing we have to do, because you could skip this if you're not careful and you just go on talking about it. But we have to define what is anxiety. I think that's a, a preliminary thing that we have to, preliminary question we have to ask ourselves is, what is anxiety? Well, this, this word actually for anxiety is used in various contexts and it's not always used in a negative way, interestingly. So first, anxiety, anxiety or worry can refer to healthy or natural and I would say even responsible concern. And it is the same word. 
It's the same word that we, the same Greek word that we find Jesus using here is used in those contexts where it has to do with a positive, well, I should say a natural or even in some cases a positive form of concern. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7.33, Paul makes an argument that it would be better if a man did not marry. He recognizes elsewhere marriage, and even there, marriage is a great thing, a gift from God. But his emphasis there in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is that if a man is single, or a woman is single, or there's a widow, uh, or, or a virgin, that, that staying unmarried would be a positive thing, because in such a state, that individual could serve the Lord in a more devoted way. And he says there in verse 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. <laughs> So, question on that. Is it, uh, does, G, does Paul there mean worldly and anxious in a negative sense? Well, no. We know that because we've studied chapter 5 of Ephesians and we know that it is, in fact, a man's mandate from the Lord to please his wife. He is to love his wife as his own body. He is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He is to nourish her and to cherish her, treasure her, protect her. All this other language that are all these other ideas that kind of come up out of chapter 5. So we know that Paul is not there saying you would be anxious, i.e. sinfully anxious, if you married and had a spouse. No. He's simply saying there that in such a relationship, there is a level of care and forethought that is required... Which is simply part of wisdom. We, we want to have that wisdom as husbands. We try. We pray for it. This is care and forethought that is simply part of being a good husband. So it can be used in that way as a very natural thing. Paul would say that, is, that, that it would be better to be devoted exclusively to the Lord's work. But that's not for everyone. Jesus will say that calling is not for everyone. So this is a very natural kind of anxiety if you will. It's the same word. So there's that. Secondly, there is a kind of anxiety for the Lord's work, which is placed in Scripture in a very positive way. Let me give you a few examples. Philippians 2.20. Speaking of Timothy, Paul says, For I have no one like him. He's commending Timothy. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Same word. Who will be genuinely anxious for your welfare. Paul's not referring to that in any kind of negative way. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, he desires that the members of the local church may have the same care or anxiety for one another. So there we see that that is a positive thing. And then we, some of us have, have encountered this passage from the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, where Paul refers to the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Well, we would consider that to be a positive thing. Paul is serving the Lord. He is pursuing the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He, is, he gets to the end of his life, 2 Timothy, he says that he has run the race. There's a crown laid up for him because he has faithfully carried out the, the commission which the Lord has given him when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So his anxiety for the churches is part of his ministry to them as an apostle. So here we see it's not negative. 1 Corinthians 7.34, the unmarried woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. It's a good thing, he says. How to be holy in body and spirit. Now, let me just say something. Are we anxious about how to be holy in body and spirit? Because that's a good thing. That kind of concern, that kind of intense eagerness and desire to be holy is what we're called to do. That's a good thing. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus will say. So there's a, a healthy way. To be anxious. Or it can refer to a kind of hyper concern. This is what we tend to associate with worry. The word worry really captures this more than anything else. A kind of hyper concern that is ultimately self-centered, irrational, worldly, and faithless. And concerning this, we are told in Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And we'll get that in this passage too. Not even the bare essentials. Nothing. Be anxious about nothing. 
Different, different idea here than the positive one that we came to before. Second, so that's the first preliminary thing that I want you to see is we have to define what we mean by anxiety or worry. The second thing I want you to see is that we are commanded not to do it. This is not a suggestion. This is not just try to avoid that. This is, this is a commandment from the Lord Jesus in the same way that he commands us not to commit adultery, not to murder, not to steal, not to lie. The same force of command is present here from our Lord. Don't do it. Do not worry. It's a painful thing to hear, to consider that at the end of the day, the battle against anxiety is a battle for obedience. Have you thought about it in those terms? It is a battle for obedience. It is a battle against sin. At the end of the day, and as I said before, there's nuance with regard to different situations, different physiological conditions and issues. But ultimately, at the end of the day, as we as human beings in general are concerned, it is a battle for obedience and a battle against sin. Do you have that category? Third, a third preliminary thing to consider is that Jesus' words in this passage become even more striking when we realize that he is talking about basic necessities. Now, I don't know if this is the case or how many it is the case for. But generally speaking, I would say here today, generally speaking, our worries do not tend to be about specific things that mean our survival, life and death. And isn't it amazing that Jesus is here referring to things that are utterly needed for life to a group of people on the side of a mountain, some of whom are fathers and mothers and who are wondering whether or not they're going to have food for their families in the near future, whether or not they're going to have an outer cloak to keep themselves warm at night. And Jesus could even say this to them. How much more us? How much more those of us who are so troubled by luxuries? So concerned and weighed down and choked by things we don't even need. So now, for our main point, in waging war against worry, Jesus says to observe the creation. So just keep those preliminary thoughts in mind. Now we come to observing the creation. Jesus uses the language of observation. We see that in two verses in particular. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. And then in verse 28, consider the lilies of the field. Now this is another interesting thing to consider about worry. Worry is self-perpetuating. And here's what I mean by that. Worry has a way of turning the mind, the heart, and the eyes Inward rather than outward. And so here's the problem. The person who is worried is probably not even paying attention to the birds and the the flowers and the trees, much less the people in their lives. We're turned entirely inward, self-absorbed, meditating on our own burdens and our own problems. And so Jesus, I think here too, is ripping us out of ourselves. And he's saying, look around you. Just observe. Be human. Be human. Look at what God has made. Look at what he has done. And Jesus' basic point is that God takes care of his creatures. Birds are fed. Wildflowers grow in magnificent beauty and splendor. Greater than that of the greatest kings. The greatest king. One of the greatest kings in the ancient world in general. But of course the greatest king. The most majestic of all the kings of Israel, King Solomon, given by God not only wisdom, which he asked for righteously, but all the other things as well that would come with being king. And he was, dis- he was displayed in all of this majesty and splendor. And Jesus is saying, not even that king in all of his glory and splendor on his throne with all of his fancy robes is as beautiful as a wildflower in the middle of the field. Can't compare God takes care of birds. He takes care of flowers. God cares for them and provides for them. Even with their minimal capacities. 
They don't sow, reap, gather, toil, or spin as humans do. Humans do. Humans can. These animals don't do those things. They work, especially in the case of birds, not so much in the case of flowers. But they work hard. They do things. They, they do collect. And they do create. They build their nests. But they don't have the capacity to, of humans. Yet God cares for them. We find these ideas affirmed throughout the Bible. So listen to Job 38, 41. God declares to him, who provides for the raven its prey? When its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about for lack of food. And listen to Psalm 147, 8 to 9, which we covered some of that in our, well, all of that in our call to worship. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. The image of ravens crying out to God for help. Consider this. Next time you hear the birds chirping in your yard, they are, as it were, as it's described here, calling out to God for help. Feed me, O Lord. You have placed within me. Instincts, you have created me, you have made me. Obviously, don't have this kind of reason to, to think this through, but essentially, that's what's happening. All of creation is declaring the praises of God, and all of creation is dependent upon God as the creator and the sustainer daily, but also through the laws of nature and through the instincts which He has placed in these animals. It's incredible to watch how animals instinctively do what they do from the time of their birth. It's incredible. So Jesus says, stop. Take a look. Consider. Take in what is around you. Notice how God cares for his creatures. That's the first thing Jesus wants us to do. If we can't do that, we can't really go much further. Let's just start basic. Let's just observe. When we leave here this morning, we go out of the, of the door. Just kind of look around and listen. Take some, take some of that in. But that's not all. Next, Jesus goes to comparing the value. After drawing our attention to birds and flowers, Jesus then draws a comparison. Verse 26, are you not of more value than they? Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And you just see Jesus going, hmm. oh, you have little faith. Look, see, notice, compare, consider who you are, think. Oh, you of little faith. The grass would have grown and these flowers would have grown and been very beautiful one minute. The next minute they would have withered and you would gather them up and use them as fuel for an oven. That's it. Gone. Meaningless, like a vapor, and yet we are greater than all of these things. I think there are two realities that Jesus wants us to grasp here. The first one is that human beings are made in the image of God. Do you constantly remind yourself of this? Do you know this is probably one of the greatest prescriptions for being unkind to people? Just consider that that person is an image bearer of God. Every person. The people who annoy you most, they bear the image of God. Even the most vile sinner, by God's grace, bears the image of God. The heart is corrupt, wicked, but the image remains. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock. Over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What dignity God has given man. What dignity. So much greater than birds and flowers than anything else in creation. We are greater, more valuable, superior to all earthly creation. In our substance, we have a rational soul. We think, we create. Just drive into Atlanta and watch all those planes 
flying all over the place. Maybe Ken or Craig or Bentley's up there at some point. Just all those planes flying all over the place. And you think to yourself, man made those planes and created an understanding of aerodynamics and all of the things associated with flying. Just something like that so common and so basic. And we think, man, what an incredible brilliance there is to the mind of man. Our substance, our ability to cultivate relationships and our function as those who oversee all of creation. These are the things that distinguish us from everything else around us. As image bearers, we are given an ability to work and create. So I want you to consider this. God's provision that he outlines for us, that he will care for us, is encapsulated within the fact that he has given us an ability to work and create. Just as God has given instincts to animals to find their own food, to hunt, he has also given us the ability to cultivate and to work and to reason and to find a job and so forth. These are the things that God has given us, gifted us with in our nature as human beings. So just as we are told to look at the bird and the flower, we are also reminded that we are told to look at the ant. The ant tells us that we should work hard. We are trying hard to get our son to, to stop stomping on anthills in our yard or anywhere else. And it is a constant uh, opportunity for us to remind him that God wants us to see those little ants and to say, I must work hard. I must labor. I must toil. I mustn't be lazy. The second reality for us, aside from the image of God, Is that for those of us who follow Jesus, God is our father. Speaking of the birds, Jesus says, your heavenly father feeds them. Notice that God is not a heavenly father to the birds. He's their maker, but he is not a heavenly father to the birds. He is your heavenly father, Christian. Your heavenly father feeds them. So we are not just image bearers, but redeemed Christ bearers and adopted children. Last week, Mark shared from us, uh, shared with us Romans 8, 14 to 17. And we saw the fact that we've been brought from a state of being under God's wrath, that old condition of sin, that old condition of condemnation. We've been brought from that to being the children of God. We've been adopted into his family. So Jesus says, if God cares for birds and flowers, how much more will he take care of his own image bearing children? Do you believe that? Do we believe that? As we'll read later in Matthew seven eleven, Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And we don't believe that. Why? Why don't we believe that about our Father? Do you know what God says about us parents? We're evil. We are evil in comparison to God. Think about your parenting. How much you love your kids. How much you want to give them good things. Right things. You want to bless them. That is evil hatred. Compared to how much God wants to bless. And love on his people. So observe the creation. Jesus says. And when you do. Compare the value. But Jesus has much more to say as he wages war against worry, as you see from these seven points. So we'll go on to the third now. The third thing that Jesus, I think, wants us to do is recognize the futility. Look at verse 27 again, if you will. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Of course, survival is at the heart of all of our worries. Even if we don't consciously know it, we want to live. We love life. Sometimes it's painful and hurts, but we want to live. We want to survive. And this is why the writer of Hebrews comments on the universal fear of death. Jesus delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know, people who don't know the Lord may say, I'm not afraid to die, but it's a lie. It's not true. Deep down in their heart of hearts, they are afraid to die. There is a fear of death in all people. 
Because there is that desire to cling to that one thing we know, which is breath and life here and now. Jesus comes and delivers us from that fear because he gives us real life. He gives us eternal life. But survival is always at the heart of our worries. And so we worry about anything and everything that even remotely threatens our survival, our longevity, our flourishing. Anything that might come in and, and mess up our plan. Anything that might come in and cut life short. Anything that could possibly happen to us is an opportunity for us to worry. And what Jesus says here is both theology and common sense. That's the one thing that's great. Uh, about, about the Christian faith is that it never leaves reason behind. See, Christianity is not anti-intellectual. It is not irrational. It's not blind faith. It is entirely, perfectly, sweetly, beautifully intelligent and rational it, because it is truth. It is truth. The God who made the mind of man is the God Who speaks to us in the gospel. And so of course all of it is rational and true. And so Jesus here he speaks from the standpoint of theology. And he speaks from the standpoint really of just common sense. So theologically he says you can't add to your life. Essentially because you don't have control over your life. God does. You can't add one single minute to your life. You can worry all you want and you can strive and you can do everything in your power. But there, it is appointed unto man once to die. There is a time for dying for each of us as God has sovereignly ordained it and fixed it. Can I add to that? No amount of striving or worrying is going to increase your life. In terms of common sense, worry only detracts from life. It adds nothing. So Dr. Charles Mayo, of the, one of the founders of the Mayo Clinic, said this. Worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system. I have never met a man or known a man to die of overwork. Maybe some of you feel like that's not the case. That's what he said. Never met a man or known a man to die of overwork, but I have known a lot who died of worry. What's the conclusion? Worry is not only futile, it is harmful. It doesn't add a thing, not a single thing. You can, and here's the thing, God is so good, we can look back in our own memory. We have memory. We can look back in our own memory and we can see all the times our lives were wasted worrying. God saw it through. Did he see it through because we were worrying? No. He saw it through because he's God. He's our father. He didn't see it through because we were worrying we made it happen because we worried. No, we, we, we maybe have to, had to work hard. We may have to do this or that. But that was just a part of what we needed to do each day. It wasn't a result of the worrying that made it successful. That made it happen. It is futile and it is harmful. And instead of adding to life, the Bible gives us the image of being weighed down or strangled. I want to I leave you with these two pictures, mental pictures, as we leave this morning. The Bible tells us that worry weighs us down and it strangles us. Luke 21, 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. And here's the one we're talking about this morning. Notice it's in that list. Cares of this life. Same idea, same root word that we have here. Hold on a second. Dissipation and drunkenness and worry. Those are in the same list. Those are in the same category. Hold on a second. I'm not a drunkard and I'm not living in dissipation, but I do worry all the time. Maybe we need to rethink our walk with the Lord. Maybe we do need to repent this morning. Really repent. Of the sin in our lives. And look to God for his grace. Which he so, so offers to us. And extends to us in Christ. It weighs us down. Are you weighed down? Almost crushed. Flattened. This morning. By worry. Listen to the Lord. Listen to the Lord. Matthew thirteen twenty two. As for what was sown among thorns. This is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world 
and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I wonder this morning how much lack of fruitfulness in our lives, how much lack of usefulness for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor, how much lack there is because our lives are being strangled and choked by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Jesus is saying, let that loose. Be fruitful. Don't let these things choke the word. Let the word flourish. Let the word do what it's meant to do. And that is give life and expand the kingdom of God. Not choke us up and hold us down defeated in the midst of our anxiety. So, don't worry. Says Jesus, observe the creation. Compare the value and recognize the futility. And he says much more, but we'll come to that next week. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord. What would we do without it? Oh God, how we need it. How easily we just drift away. How easily we get weighed down, get strangled. What a refreshing reminder today that you call us back together every week as a body to be instructed from your word so that we might lay aside these things which weigh us down and burden us and entangle us and that we might fix our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus, that we might follow him to death, trusting him every hour, every minute for what we need. Father, we ask for your help. I pray for those, especially in our congregation, who, would, who are here or would be listening, who are just really struggling with anxiety. And especially those who are maybe on medication for anxiety and and are trying to discern how to move forward in a way that is godly in light of their physical issues and struggles, physiological struggles. God, would you help them find the help they need? Would you help them have wisdom? Help them discern and parse out their own heart. Help us all, Father. We are all troubled Daily by things that ought not take our focus. And so God we pray for help. We know that Jesus you died. That we might be rid of sin. That we would cast aside all lawlessness and disobedience. And that we would be trained to be zealous for good works. That we would be holy and righteous and pleasing to you. Walking worthy of the calling to which you have called us. God, we we pray for this. We hope for this. Would you change us? Would you be merciful to us today? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. This time in our service, we will have our Lord's Supper. So if you're serving that, we just ask that you go ahead and come forward. This is a wonderful time in our service. Where we get to go back to ground zero of all of the Christian life, of everything we're learning in the, in the word of God. That we are brought back to the reality of the cross. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth, God incarnate, God enfleshed, came and he died on a cross to pay the penalty for sin. He died on the cross that we could have our sins paid for and could be made right with God. And so this is, a, this is something that, that we do as Christians, those who have been made right with God through the cross. And so we would say this morning, if you're not a believer, we welcome you and we want to get to know you. Please come and talk with us. But we would ask that you refrain from participating in this. This is a, an opportunity for us as believers in Jesus to publicly, together and before the Lord, confess our sins, uh, reestablish our trust in him, and to communicate to one another that we believe in the blood of Jesus. So come when you're ready.